0: You can make your way back to your seat. <clears throat> and we'll jump in. Ooh. If you're new here with us, my name's Brent Smith, and I'm uh, one of the leaders here at Christ Central. And uh, as Ollie said at the beginning, we're certainly glad that you're here with us. And as Ollie said at the beginning as well, Joe and Gary and Barb are down in Wolfville helping the Christ Community Church down there. And uh, Mark is, uh, is down in New York and we've got a great team that is just finishing up. Hopefully you've been following the updates on Facebook. They've had a full a full week down there, but we're trusting that it's been a great week and uh, trusting that God's doing a great work in them and using them for a great purpose there in New York, and really trusting that that is going to carry on here, that it's not just a a one week that's boxed in, but uh, that God's going to continue something uh, through them as they come back here after that week. And so that's certainly what we've been praying for, that God's got a bigger plan for this week with this team than just this past week, right? And so we're excited about what that will look like and how God is going to use them when they get back as well. So they arrive, I think, later tonight sometime, late tonight. So uh, for the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Second Corinthians and in a series that we've called Live the Paradox because Second Corinthians just flips everything on its head and we're strong when we're weak and uh, in suffering there's comfort and everything is just kind of flipped around. And so uh, that's what we've been looking at. So th- this morning we're in... First, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 23 uh, and we're going to carry through to the first section of chapter 2 down to verse 11. So I'll read it and, uh, and then we'll try to wrap our heads around what Paul's saying and hopefully apply it to ourselves as well. So Father, we're, we are thankful that you've met with us. We, we're thankful that you have poured out your presence on us and now we say speak through your word. We want to be changed through your word. We want to be changed uh, by your Spirit working through the Word, and so we pray, Father, that you would come now and you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. And so we open ourselves up to you, and we just say, Father, come and do your work, have your way in us this morning for your glory. Amen. All right, right, Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. And it'll be up on the screen as well. So Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? But the one whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs. All right, let's try to wrap our head around what Paul's saying here, okay? So the tricky thing about 2 Corinthians is it just seems to be letters and visits and visits and letters and tears and letters and visits, and it can get a bit confusing. So uh, every week we'll probably have to stop and remind ourselves of what the, what the story is. So if you remember... We've been talking for a few weeks about how Paul planted this church in Corinth. He stayed with them a year. Uh, but then after uh, tension between the Apostle Paul and this church in Corinth started to rise up. And some people there in Corinth had turned on Paul. Uh, they had laid accusations against him. They had doubted his apostleship and so on. And so last time when we looked at chapter 1, 12 to 22, we saw that Paul had changed his travel plans. He said he was going to come for a visit and turns out he didn't. And uh, and the Corinthians just saw him as being fickle and fake uh, so that his yes meant no and his no meant yes and they couldn't really believe anything that he said. He was just a big phony and his word couldn't be trusted. But now in verse 23, Paul begins to explain himself uh, and more of what his motivations were for acting the way he did. So that's Uh, what he's getting into here. He's saying, this is why I didn't come to visit when I said I was going to come to visit originally. And he says that far from being fickle or fake, it was his great love for them, his abundant love that caused him not to come. And a visit at that time would have been too painful, painful for him, painful for both parties. And so he wanted to spare them from that. And instead he chose to write them a letter and still rebuked them and still encouraged them and still pointed them towards Jesus, but hopefully cooler heads would prevail, okay? So, he's saying they're, they're all upset that he didn't come visit and he just sent a letter and he's saying, I sent a letter and didn't visit, not because I wanted to pain you, but because of my abundant love for you, okay? So, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2, uh, Paul shows that there was a a specific problem with an individual in the church. He talks of an individual man causing him much pain. In chapter 7, verse 12, Paul talks of the one who did the wrong. And so there's, on top of this kind of uh, mutiny, so to speak, of the church turning on Paul, there's a certain individual who's causing a lot of problems. And it's not really clear who this was or even what he did, It could be the guy that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who's sleeping with his dad's wife, or it could be another person who's just causing some general division in the church, or it could be the same guy because if you're sleeping with your stepmom Saturday night, you're probably not looking to encourage one another as long as it's called today on Sunday morning. So, could be that guy. Whatever the case might have been, This guy opposed Paul, and at least part of the severe letter that Paul wrote contained an admonishment for the church to bring church discipline on this guy. And so the Corinthian church did that, and praise God, he sees the weight of it all, the seriousness of his sin, and he repented. He just didn't jump on a donkey and go to the next church 20 minutes down the road, so he continued to live the way he's been living. He accepted the church discipline. He received it. He repented, and he came back. But then the problem was that the church was still holding him at arm's length. They didn't receive him back in, even though he had repented. And so Paul here says, you know, uh, you've done well in practicing church discipline. It's had its desired effect in bringing him to repentance. But now for his sake and yours, forgive him. I've forgiven him. You need to forgive him and welcome him back in. So that's the basic idea of what's happening here. And for this morning, I'd like to focus in on how Paul leads this church through this situation. So we've got a lot of things. It just seems like a big mess that he's working through, but he really shows us how Paul approaches his apostolic leadership over this church through these verses. And we looked at how uh, when, we, when we opened this series, we talked about how 1 Corinthians, uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, really shows us the heart of the church. 2 Corinthians shows us the heart of the apostle, shows us the heart of Paul. And really, in these verses, uh, we see Paul at a level that we don't usually see in his letters. He kind of peels back the curtain. He talks about great anguish and affliction and writing through a lot of tears he talks about his, his abundant love. We're really getting a peek at the nuts and bolts of what makes Paul tick and his heart for this church. And so we're going to see some leadership principles as Paul leads here in Corinth, uh, but the nice thing is that they're not just principles for apostles because not many of us are apostles, but they're leadership principles that I think we can bring in no matter what leadership capacity we are in. And so, just to state from the get-go, it's a tad awkward to preach on leadership to the people that you're called to lead, okay? But, for the sake of you exchanging your amens for that'd be nice, or (laughs) you should give that a try, leadership is an important thing, so we're going to talk about it this morning, all right? And, uh, And just because I'm up here, don't think that I'm up there, all right? And so for the past 11 years, I've had the privilege of leading my family. For the last five years, I've had the privilege of leading uh, in here. Uh, For the last three years, I've had the privilege of leading a life group. And if anything, those things have showed me uh, my weaknesses and my shortcomings as a leader. And so we all sit under the Word of God this morning and desire for God to change us, right? Just like any Sunday. Amen. So let's jump in. And as we said, live the paradox. Second Corinthians flips everything on its head. And there's nothing short here of that in Paul's view on leadership. So first, let's look at verse 24. Verse 24, and we'll see that Paul leads beside others look at what he says in verse 23 he says but i call god to witness against me it was to spare you that i refrain from coming again to corinth not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you so when things are tense we have this tendency to think the worst of people and it seems that's what paul's doing here because he talks about how uh, uh, not that i spared you from this and it's almost like he pictures the Corinthians reading that and saying, oh yeah, you don't spare us, eh? You just think you're the big boss, and you're just going to throw your weight around, and, and he says, no, 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 not that we lord it over you, we work with you, okay? So, so verse 24 is almost like a, a parenthesis here in Paul's argument. So, he moves in quickly and says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with with you. The New Living Translation says, but that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. So Paul's leadership is not a dictatorship. He's not a tyrant. He didn't set himself up as high looking down on them. He was put in authority over them, but he didn't seek to make them his footstool. And even when things got dicey and tense, Paul doesn't uh, relinquish his leadership and nor does he relinquish his idea of serving in his leading. And it's really key to see this because oftentimes we approach leadership in one of two ways. We make every attempt to remove any sort of authority, remove any sort of responsibility and accountability, and we just say, we're all leaders, we don't need an appointed leader. After all, that's not really fair, right? And so leadership can be seen as an unnecessary obstacle, an unnecessary mountain that needs to be removed, okay? Or we approach leadership as the ultimate mountain to climb, and we just want to get to the next cliff face, higher and higher, because the higher we get, the more people we can look down on, and the more people can look up to us, and we love that, right? And so Leadership, we can approach it in those ways. It's either a mountain that we just need to level and be removed, or it's a mountain that we need to climb. That's the ultimate goal. Just get me on the top, and I can stick a flag on the top that says, Brent. (laughs) Right? And everyone can say, look how high he is, and I can look down at everyone else. But look at how Paul views leadership. He doesn't abdicate his position. He understands what he's been called to, Look at how he opens the letter, for goodness sake. He says, I'm the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He knows, he's confident in his leadership. He's not abdicating that. But then uh, he says, I don't lord it over you. I work with you. I work alongside you. Yes, God's called me to lead. God has anointed me to lead. And by doing so, he's called me to serve. I work with you. And so the ministry you're in or wherever God has placed you to lead, it's a bit like a car. And if everyone piles in the back seat, then you're not going to go anywhere, right? At the same time, it's hard to reach the pedals when you're standing triumphantly on the roof over everyone else, (laughs) right? You don't abdicate your position, you get in shoulder to shoulder alongside everyone else and you grab the steering wheel and you drive the car, okay? So Paul doesn't abdicate, but he's not lording it over them. He says, I work with you, shoulder to shoulder, together. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are we viewing leadership? Have we abdicated the responsibility that God has put on us because we see it as an obstruction and a mountain that needs to be leveled, or are we consumed with positioning ourselves as high up on that mountain as we can because the higher we get, the more that people can look up to us and the more we can look down on others. So has our identity become wrapped up in our position as a leader of people in the world instead of your position as a child of God in Christ? Has your identity become wrapped up more in your position as a leader of people in the world, instead of your position as a child of God in Christ. Paul leads beside others. Second, I should have said from the start, the reason that's so high on that slide is because I have six points. Okay? We got a six-pointer this morning. Hang on. Second, in verse 24... Paul goes on to show us the goal of his leadership, what he is working them towards. He says, I work with you for your joy. I work with you for your joy. Paul sees his leadership over the Corinthians as a cultivation of their joy. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul links their joy with his joy as their apostolic leader and his joy with theirs. He says, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So there's a mutual sharing of joy from church to apostle here. And we should, say, should think, well, how does Paul seek to see joy in the life of those that he leads? And we see that everything he does is centered around seeing them in right relationship with God and in right relationship with each other when one of his main concerns is the happiness the joy of the people he is leading and not just regular old happiness but happiness in God happiness and joy in God notice the connection in verse 24 between faith and joy not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for your joy for you stand firm in your faith okay So there's a big connection here between their faith, their trust in God, and their joy. And so Paul knows that true joy comes from knowing and trusting and enjoying God. And that's why he gets them to bring church discipline on this guy in sin, so that that man can see how he's gotten off track, repent, and enjoy the grace of God in his life. That's why he pleads with the church to bring bring the man back in and forgive the man. And welcome them back. Paul knows that where there is unity and intimacy and trust, there is joy. Joy springs up out of that. Don't we know that? That when there's unity and trust and intimacy, that joy springs up. Because how much joy do you have right now holding on to that unforgiveness? How much rejoicing do you do when there is disunity and division in your family or in the group you are leading. Those things don't cultivate joy. It's intimacy and unity and right relationship with God and with others that allows joy to spring up. There's not much joy when there's no trust. I know that. If you've been married four days, you know that. But when Karen and I have a a heated disagreement, we'll say, that there's a break in that mutual trust of each other and it's painful. There's no joy. We're in close proximity with each other because we're living both at 44 Wayman and so we're together, but there isn't much joy because there isn't a nearness. That trust has had a temporary division. And author John Bloom says this, This is as true in our relationship with God as it is in our relationship with other human beings. Our experience of God's nearness or distance is not a description of his actual proximity to us, but of our experience of intimacy with him. Scripture shows us that God is intimate with those who trust him. The more we trust God, the more intimately we come to know him. A felt distance from God is often due to a disruption in trust, such as a sin or disappointment. And so Paul says, we don't lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy. He desires to see them in right relationship with God, enjoying intimacy with God, and in right relationship with each other, enjoying unity with each other. So that they and him can be a joyful people. Everything he does is centered around that. Right relationship vertically with God, right relationship horizontally with others. And this rubs right against how we often approach re- leadership because our main goal is so often not joy in God, but approval of us. Our main goal is often not joy in God, but approval of us. Paul says in, Cal- in Galatians 1, he says, give your head a shake. I'm not trying to win the approval of people. If I were, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, okay? Okay. We need to see the huge gap between leading for joy and leading for approval. Paul led for joy. And so we need to say, is that our goal in our leadership? Do we lead for joy or do we lead for approval? It doesn't really matter what divisions they have, what grudges they have with other people, what their relationship with God is like, as long as they like me. the goal in your leadership and what shapes your decisions and directions has to be bigger than just being liked. I listened to a sermon when I was like 19 and the guy said, you don't have to know a lot of things in the world. You don't have to know a lot of things to change the world. You just have to know a few things and be willing to live and die for them. But your problem is you don't want to change the world, all you want to be is liked. And I had to pull the car over because I almost went in the ditch, and it was uh, cut to the heart. You don't need to know a lot of things to change the world. You just need to know a few things and be willing to live and die for them. But your problem is you don't want to change the world. All you want to be is liked. Paul leads for joy. He doesn't lead for approval. Thirdly, look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Paul leads through tears. He says, For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Here Paul shows us that even though he's working for their joy and not their approval, he doesn't enjoy causing them pain. He's not a jerk about it. His love is his motivation for writing, not their pain. And you know, sometimes... People in leadership can wound for the sake of wounding and they almost enjoy having a heavy hand that brings correction and pain and they can take the attitude, well, my goal isn't to please people, I'm just like Paul, you know. No, you're a jerk, just like a jerk person. (laughs) You're bringing correction, but it's not through tears. Paul had planted this church, he had raised it up, He had nurtured it, given his life for it, and like Moses leading the Israelites out into the desert, they turned on him. And they began to question his sincerity, question his own walk with God, and it cut Paul deeply. And in his letter to help them correct that, as he wrote the words, he's sobbing, because he knew that the strong words he was writing would pain them, even if that wasn't his intent. And so the scroll that Second Corinthians was written on, the ink would be smudged because Paul is sobbing as he writes the words that he wrote. He writes through tears. He leads through tears. And so if you lead, you should expect sorrow and be willing to endure affliction and anguish of heart. You should be expect there to be times of leading through many tears. People aren't always going to understand you People aren't always going to agree with you and there will be times of correction and pain because faithful are the wounds of a friend. And one person said, if you're not bleeding, you're not leading. So I don't know what picture you think of when you think of the Apostle Paul, but you need to see him here bent over his desk writing while weeping for this church. Here is a man in emotional and mental and physical pain over the state of the church in Corinth, those he was called to lead. This is a fearless man. Paul leads in a way that he isn't afraid to go places that he knows will inevitably end up with him sobbing over a letter. And this isn't the first or last time that Paul would have wept over those he was called to lead. So what brought him to that place. At the end of verse 4, he says, uh, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul experienced so much anguish and so much affliction, he shed so many tears because he had an abundant love for the people he was called to lead. A leader leads beside others for joy, through tears, and with love. And when you love big like Paul does, then you open yourself up to hurt big as Paul did. And the amount of tears Paul shed for this church matched the depth of the love that he had for them. In fact, when we look at Paul's apostleship, we just see how deep his love was for all those that he led. He tells the Philippians, you have a special place in my heart and God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. He compares his relationship with the Galatians to that of a new mother with a newborn baby. He tells the Thessalonians, I loved you so much that I shared with you not only the gospel, but my own life as well. In fact, the ESV translates that, I was so affectionately desirous of you. Affectionately desirous. When's the last time you used That phrase, right? It sounds like a line from Dawson's Creek. Affectionately desirous for you. This is a man who is passionate about those that he leads. It's over the top. But if we're honest uh, to see just that no-holds-barred passion of Paul for those that he leads, it's refreshing. Because so often what we see are leaders who command without that commitment to those that they're leading. They lead, but without that, love. They display authority without affection. And so often in leadership, we love our position more than the people that we lead. So often we love our position of leadership more than those that we are called to lead. And so in whatever position of leadership we find ourselves in, we need to ask ourselves the tough question of, do I love to lead more than I love the people I'm called to lead? And you can fill in the blank with wherever you find yourself. Do I love to lead more than I love the people I'm called to lead in that? And maybe when you see that, you ask yourselves, when you ask yourself that question, you find that the scales are tipped more towards loving your position than it is loving your people. And you think, I want to love the people more. How would I grow in loving the people more that I'm called to lead? That's a great question to ask. One way we see from Paul is that he prays for the people he leads. And I think we grow in our love for those we lead when we pray for them. As we call out to God for those people, ask Him to bless them, pour out His favor and grace on them, our hearts begin to be molded and fashioned after His own heart for them. We begin to love them like He loves them. And I know for ourselves, whenever we gather as elders and we take time to pray for the church, you leave having more love for the church because you spent time calling out to God for the people. And as we pray, we grow in love. So whatever position of leadership you find yourself in, pray for them so that you can love them, so that you can lead them. Paul is constantly praying for the churches he's leading. Literally, he says to the Romans, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. And to the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul loves the people more than his position because he prays for the people that he leads. When we come in prayer to God on His throne, our position takes its rightful place. And the people whom Jesus died for take theirs. So in your family... Pray for your children so that you can love them, so that you can lead them. Whatever place you find yourself in in leadership, pray for them so that you can love them, so that you can lead them. Fifthly, there's not many times I get to say fifthly, so I wanted to say fifthly. Paul leads in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And so, Paul, he's doing it again. He's always bringing things in and circling them around Jesus, right? We looked last time, he truly lives lives the Christ-central life. Everything comes into orbit around the weight and the glory of, of Jesus Christ and no different here in his leadership. He reminds them that he forgave this individual for the church's sake in the presence of Christ. He's always bringing us back to the presence of Christ. Jesus isn't some distant Savior in the sky, nothing more than just a free ticket to heaven. Jesus affects every area of of his life and so when it comes to leadership and how he's going to lead and guide this group of people in Corinth he says don't forget I've forgiven him you need to forgive him because let's not forget we're in the presence of Christ here we're operating in the presence of Christ his presence is in us it always and only comes back to Christ it always comes back to Jesus Here specifically, Paul looks to Jesus as he leads this church forward towards forgiveness. But generally, Jesus was the source, model, and empowerment for all of Paul's leadership. Paul sees Jesus lead us not by standing far off or far above, but by leaving heaven and coming to earth, not loving his position more than his people because he emptied himself he took the form of a servant. He was born of a woman, tempted as we are in all respects. He lived and taught, not seeking his hearer's approval, but their ultimate joy in God. Then being so affectionately desirous of us for his people, he gives not just a good teaching, but his life, and out of much affliction and anguish of heart, And with many tears to show his abundant love for us, he is nailed to a cross so that we, though we are sinful, can enter into the joy of our master. So Jesus is the true leader. And because he is those things, as we live in his presence, he empowers us by his spirit to lead in a new way, in his way. Because my position is in Jesus, I can lead humbly beside the people. Because my approval is in Jesus, I can lead for joy. Because Jesus comforts me, I can lead through much anguish and tears and give my life in love. That's what Paul's leadership points us to. This is absolutely critical essential without Jesus at the center and the foundation and the empowerment of it all it's just a Tony Robbins emotional just good coaching session right there's no we need the gospel at the center of it all that it always comes back always and only to what Jesus has done and how he has come how he emptied himself how he lived a perfect life how he went to the cross for you that even though you were still in your sin He loved you, and He died for you. And that isn't just a free ticket to heaven. It becomes everything in your life. It becomes the sun at the center of the solar system, like Angela said, and everything else revolves around it. So Paul's leadership flows from his relationship with the ultimate leader, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, even though we are in Christ, Jesus not only gives us a model, but an empowerment and strengthening as well by his Spirit to lead, but Paul recognizes as well that we have an enemy. Look at verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul says, I've forgiven this guy. You need to forgive this guy because don't forget we're in the presence of Christ, but also don't forget we have an enemy who has designs against us. He has designs against our unity, against our mission, against our people. He's an enemy that hates biblical leadership. He looks to distort and destroy any chance he's able to. He wants nothing more than to come in and turn you against me and you against each other. So in his leadership, Paul is always on guard. As much as he is mindful of being in the presence of Christ and having that shape his leadership, he is aware that he has an enemy as well. And he knows that his enemy isn't the people. His enemy isn't flesh and blood. He's on guard against Satan who looks to rob, kill, and destroy. And so in our leadership, we need to know who the enemy is. It's not the people that you're called to lead. So Paul shows us the life of a leader. They lead beside others for joy, through tears, with love, in Christ, and on guard. And so this morning you might hear all that and say, that's all fine and dandy, but I'm not a leader. I don't have a title. I'm not in a position of leadership Well, the guy who wrote all the books about leadership, John Maxwell, said leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. And we all have an area of influence. It might be big, it might be small, but it's there. And so in that sense, we're all leaders. On top of that, when Jesus gave the Great Commission and he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, that's for you. And so you've been called to lead people to God for salvation. When Jesus said that, it wasn't just for the people that were in front of him. It was for us as well. Jody Ward might be the Christ Central Kids coordinator, but it's clear from God's word that we are all called to lead the next generation to put their hope in God. And so we need to ask ourselves, what kind of leader will I be? And so right from the start of this year, if you've been coming to our meetings, if you've been coming to our TAG and our prayer week and all through, we've had a a great sense that God, that we're right on the cusp of God doing a great work in us and through us. And as Gary said, during our prayer week, the wind is blowing in the tops of the trees that there's a downpour coming soon. And we believe that, we feel that as part of the church. And so we're beginning to see things take shape. Some things that appear just like regular events on the calendar, like the weekend away, we're trusting that they're going to be milestones in the life of the church. With these ministries that we're seeing beginning to take shape, like Kids Club, we're trusting that they're going to have a huge impact on the life of this church and the life of this city. We still carry the prophetic vision of seeing 12 established churches in Atlantic Canada, in university and college cities. And so we're trusting that God's got some big things ahead for us, right? We're trusting that God is about to bring us into a move of His Spirit like we haven't seen yet, at least in my lifetime. And we look back at the conference last year, we're trusting that there's some kingdom advancements that are going to happen, that have yet to happen, that that conference wasn't just a few days in May of last year, but it had a greater purpose going out from it that we've yet to see. And we don't know what it will all look like, but I know this, the church will need men and women to rise up and lead, looking to Paul looking to Jesus like Paul and leading in this way. Not above others, but be willing to get down, empty ourselves and lead beside others. Not leading for approval, but leading so that those we are leading will find their ultimate joy in God. Be willing to make the sacrifice and the the steps that will probably result in a painful experience for ourselves, opening ourselves up in sacrificial love and commitment, knowing that it might cause a pierce to our heart that we would have to sit down and sob through tears like Paul. Strengthened in Christ, looking to him as our model and our empowerment and being on guard against the enemy's attacks. That's the leadership that is needed that's the leadership we need to rise up into as we fix our eyes on jesus and leadership just like everything else begins to circle around the person and work of jesus christ and so i'm excited about what god has in store for this church i'm excited to see us in various roles leading seeing people come to know Him, seeing this city changed. Are you excited? I don't want to prod you or anything, but if you're excited, you can show your excitement. God's going to do a great work as we set our eyes on Him, as we put our trust in Him, as we continue to seek His face. He will heal our land like we were singing. He will pour out his spirit. He will speak through his word. He will glorify his name in this city. And so we need to lead to see people come to know him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. We're so thankful that we can just lay ourselves before you and we confess that oftentimes our leadership has not looked like we've seen here in Second Corinthians, it hasn't looked uh, in how our ultimate leader, Jesus, uh, leads us. And so we just pray, Father, that you would forgive us of that, and we want to be strengthened to lead in a new way. We want to be strengthened to lead in this city in a way that glorifies you, being willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, being willing to sacrifice time and, and whatever priorities might come up, Uh, We want them to glorify you, Father. And so we just pray that you would help us. Help us to see leadership in a new way. To see it through your eyes. uh, As you are the sun at the center of the solar system. We want that and everything else in our lives to revolve around that. To be in orbit around who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. And so we pray that you would come and fill us with your spirit again. That you would strengthen us. We want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we lead in this way, and we're trusting you to do a great work in in this church and in this city. And so we pray for the group that's coming back from New York. We pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them that they would arrive back here and hit the ground running. And we trust, Father, that you've deposited something in them as they've served you this week in that uh, environment, as they went to uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle for the prayer meeting Tuesday night. We pray, Father, that you've deposited something in them and we're excited about what you're going to do through them we're excited about kids club and having an impact on this city having an impact in devon and in dune street and we pray father that you would continue to seek and save the lost and we pray for alpha as we people are gathering uh, each week at milda's pizza and hearing your good news we pray father you are mighty to save and so we pray that you would save and as they're saved and added to the church. Uh, We just pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all these things. And as we lead, uh, we want to lead for joy. We want to lead through tears with love in the power of your Son and on guard against the enemy. And we want to see you do a great work in this city for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.